0: You're listening to The MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences.
1: That five whys exercise has become just kind of at the top of my list for understanding users now. It's not just tell me what you need. It's now tell me what you need and then why and why and why until you get down to like the core motivation, which a lot of times will be like, why? Because I want to finish my work and go home because I want a promotion because I want to, you know, increase ROI. Like it gets to like some just very base root fundamental values that we're trying to achieve. Hello,
0: I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mix and that was Jennifer Sukis director of design for ai artificial intelligence transformation at ibm and she was talking there about how her teams have been changing their approach to user research as artificial intelligence itself starts to change the design process for new products and new services change really I think even the outcomes that are actually possible for designers to achieve. And I guess while we're on the subject of, of why and asking why, let's talk about why this particular episode and, and why now? This one is actually a, a bit of a catch up. Uh, Jennifer joins that rare group of guests who have been on the podcast more than once. I had a conversation with her a couple of years back in episode 43. And that's probably quite a good one to go back and check out if you're interested in a bit more about Jennifer's fascinating background as an educator, as someone who's worked agency side, client side, and now this time that she's spent with IBM. And I think she's actually a little bit modest about it in this most recent conversation. But one of the reasons why we got together for another chat, is that her role has progressed. She's very much been promoted within the organization. And obviously, that's very much about her own talents and her own role. But also, I think, perhaps indicative of the significance of artificial intelligence and what IBM is attaching to that within the wider organization and the big companies that it works with to help them design systems and experiences. So we get on to talking about that. Uh, We talk about how she's starting to look at really ways people think rather than necessarily a set of predefined skills when she's looking to hire in new designers for her team to to grow that mission with an IBM. We talk about the ongoing horror of Clippy and how it sort of haunts this area of artificial intelligence, particularly relevant to, to AI within assistance. And maybe if you're under 30, you might need to go off and Google Clippy to find out what we're actually talking about there. But that's some some homework for you. And then the conversation starts to get really interesting, because we get on to talking about things like the dangers of exclusion and how important various forms of diversity are within artificial intelligence, particularly as AI systems get to the point where they can actually start to build other AI systems themselves, and the risk of that multiplier effect that that could have if you're not taking that inclusive approach from the outset. We talk about things like the carbon footprint of certain algorithms and how actually in the future, one of the design choices that you might need to make when working with artificial intelligence is going to be influenced by how much energy each algorithm actually requires to run. And somehow we sort of end up talking about some other things. We talk about Taylor Swift, we talk about Japanese farmhouses uh, and look for whether or not there's a positive message that we can find behind all of this craziness we're experiencing with the pandemic. Now, as ever, uh, there will be show notes to reference all of the things that Jennifer Wright gets talking about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. But for now, here's my chat with Jennifer Sukis. Hope you enjoy. <music> So, Jennifer, welcome back to Mech's design talk. Uh, I can't believe how time has flown. I think it might be certainly two years, maybe two and a half years since we had our original conversation.
1: I know. That's just crazy to me. I can't believe it's gone by that quickly.
0: Yeah, time flies. Now, I noticed on LinkedIn that you have had a, a change in job title since then. I think when we spoke before, you were the creative director working on IBM Watson. But what's the new job title? And has that actually meant a change of your role in, in practice day to day?
1: Yeah, gosh, that was a while ago. Back then, I was working with just the Watson teams, helping them work on the interaction and visual design of these products that had a lot of new UX patterns to them. And since then, my role adapted to be more about helping everyone in the cloud data and AI organization get Watson into their products. So that kind of turned into like both creating and making new tools, mostly for design thinking workshops that would help teams, you know, not have to go through a lifetime of learning about AI, but be able to jump in wherever they were and in an hour to come out of that with some really valuable, feasible AI use cases. So I was working on that for about a year and a half as a design principal. And then last fall, I think it was, my role changed into a director position. And the big change there really at IBM is who you're communicating with. So a design principal is someone that's still like working pretty closely with teams versus a director. I'm just on a lot more (laughs) phone calls and meetings, but I get to do some more high level strategy thinking with the executives above me, which is really fun and interesting, but the mission hasn't changed a whole lot. I think it's just gotten more focused. We just want to get any, Any Watson into our products, it's become a lot more focused. We want to get specific use cases and patterns of Watson into our product. And that's what I've been really focusing on for about the last almost 10 months now. And
0: is that a reflection of, I guess, the significance that's being attached to AI and the Watson capabilities within wider IBM, that it's starting to take on that more strategic significance, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's that, and it's just the natural evolution as, you know, not just we at IBM, but everybody starts to get a little more comfortable, a little more familiar with how to wield this technology appropriately in their products, and that's allowing us to get faster at it for certain, which is exciting, but also be more pointed about where we know it's going to add value, where we know we can get the best features in in the shortest amount of time. So it's, it's kind of, I think, bringing us down to a more targeted approach for now. And I'm sure that's going to expand out again. But at least at IBM, there's just so much low-hanging fruit across all of our products and services to use AI that we're trying to knock that out. Um, first before we get into some like much larger, more complex applications of AI.
0: Yeah, that's a part that I'm really curious about. I mean, both in its implementation and also in the capabilities themselves that are being developed on the, the tech side, because I think one of the reasons why we had the initial conversation a couple of years ago was certainly on the consumer side, there's been a real Rise in awareness around the role of artificial intelligence. And most of that has been, I guess, embodied within the sense of some kind of digital assistant. But of course, yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg as to how these things are being used to create new experiences. So, you know, when you think about back to when we were having that conversation a couple of years back and the kind of capabilities that you were able to bring into those, those meetings and to give people a sense of of what those experiences were that you could create versus what you're now able to take in within your toolkit. What have been some of the more significant uh, leaps or or the the changes in in the way those are being used?
1: Mm, I think that two, two and a half years ago, when I would, sit down with the team and the ask was educate them about what artificial intelligence is and then help them figure out how to use it in their product. I've done those workshops and camps with so many teams now that it kind of just filtered down to maybe five or six use cases of AI. That right now, I know we can do really well. I know that those use cases, you know, nine times out of 10 are going to be the kinds of things that a team will ultimately end up focusing on. Whether I take them through like a full three-day AI camp, or we just sit down and look at their product for an hour, it kind of lands within these areas. So those are insights and recommendations, which really... That speaks a lot to if you're a consumer, you like you said, you see AI usually in the form of a bot of some sort or an assistant. But if you're on the enterprise side of the, the table, you really see AI more frequently in a business analytics standpoint. So how can we use these machine learning models and our faster computers to keep us apprised of, you know, changes that are happening to our corpuses of data that should be impacting decisions that we're making today. So that might be things like regulations around something or changes to laws or new initiatives coming down from somewhere that you need to follow. So especially if you're like in the healthcare industry, I mean, they are, drowning under avalanches of new articles and white papers and research coming out every day. So, using AI to help them find the the gems in that information that they need specifically for what they're working on right then, I think that's become a really important use case and you know, if it's not healthcare, it's a business analyst trying to figure out, you know, what should we do with our company to make it more efficient or to Increase our profits or to do something better. And that's a lot of that is just understanding data, understanding patterns in the data, and then using those patterns to make predictions and make better decisions going forward. So, that kind of analytics is almost always a part of something that we're trying to incorporate into our products. It's also about optimizing user or business inefficiencies. So, letting us know where we could do something better or faster. That's again, like just kind of monitoring the the actions that are being taken on a system and then letting the system learn how to take those actions for somebody sometimes. Assistants and bots are still, I think they've come a lot further. They're the interaction patterns that we see in them, the way we're able to let users give them feedback to the responses that they're answering, the questions that they're answering and dynamically improve themselves. That's fantastic. Um, And we're also bringing in more features into bots by pairing them with things like business analytics or things like optimizing inefficiencies and bringing that right into the conversation. So bots are becoming broader. They're almost becoming, I feel like, dashboards, but kind of dashboards that talk to you and only tell you the thing that you need to know at the time rather than having to look at a full dashboard and then zoom in to find the information that you need. So that's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I could imagine that must be a pretty significant challenge. You know, when you think about the the volume of data that are being processed there and the resulting number of insights that might come out of applying that to, to any industry, really, that I suppose that there's a real danger that you could quite quickly overwhelm people with the amount of of information insight or possibly actionable things that you could surface to them.
1: That's a really insightful comment. I'm focusing on that with the work that I'm doing right now a lot like how do you not overwhelm users? How do you help them get their most important work done as quickly as possible and automate that work for them if we can. So It's really coming down a lot to how confident can we be about the recommendations that an AI system is making and how can we prioritize what insights or what next steps we actually are going to bubble up to a user versus not bombarding them with like, hey, you might want to know this and hey, this thing happened. So yeah, I think there's like a lot to be done with that idea of progressive disclosure that we've all worked with for years. If you're in a UX design position, how do we bring progressive disclosure to AI functionality is is a pretty interesting time right now.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, to me, that that sort of gets to the heart of the design challenge around all of this. I, I know you and I were exchanging some notes before we got together to have this conversation. I think you were raising the point about the idea of sort of agency and automation and the balance between those things. And I suppose traditionally we've always thought of good design as being something where the users of it or the consumers of it understand the affordances of the thing that they're using and they feel that they have a sense of agency over that. And if you do that well, then it it feels like good design for the user. But here there's obviously that opportunity to draw a bit of a line between what you automate and the user doesn't even perceive to be design because it's essentially invisible to them and that that there's always going to be that sort of nuanced balance between where you set the needle on that uh, in trying to achieve something that feels good and useful to, to the user and how much you, you give them the fine control versus how much you're making those decisions on their behalf.
1: Uh, Yes, exactly. I'm laughing because, um, Merrick, you should just join my team. You're already leading the conversations that I'm having all the time. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think when we all started dabbling in AI and, and realizing this is something that is in our futures, I think there was this kind of big rose-colored glasses approach to yeah of course we're going to tell our users everywhere that ai is being used in the services that we provide them we're going to give them control over how it works they're going to get explainability into it and that is a lot of work to to pull all of those explainability and transparency insights and, and control panels Where do you put that in a product without being annoying? But at the same time, like, where's the threshold? How many times do you show a user, this is how I came to this result, this is how I came to that result, before it becomes annoying and they've already crossed that threshold of trust with that particular AI system and they no longer need that. So, yeah, it's really, um, it's so new. And a lot of the stuff that I'm working on is about exactly that. Like, what are the qualities of the kind of AI that we want to build at IBM that we feel represents good AI ethics, good principles about how you design for AI. So it's coming down to those things like letting the user know, I found this insight. I think it's relevant to you right now because I understand the context of what you're working on. I am only showing it to you because I am highly, highly confident that it's important and significant to what you want to achieve. I'm also gonna give you some insight into like why I think it's important into you know, whether it's like a data visualization or highlighting what part of a large corpus of data influenced the system to make that insight Even giving users like, wait, how did that work? And just explaining in very plain language, like this feature uses machine learning to look through these data corpuses and pair it with this. So just like, I think so much of the purpose behind all of these different interactions that we're talking about is about proving out trust. Like, can we make trustworthy AI or not? How far are we going to take this automation thing? Because we're just nobody's sure yet. So I I feel like maybe down the line, these kinds of challenges might kind of settle and and phase themselves out as we get better at understanding how these systems work, at holding people accountable to um, the ethics of the systems that they're creating. And then it's just much more natural to understand, oh, this is a system that does this, therefore I don't need to be shown every single proof point behind an insight because I understand the logic of how the system works, and therefore I can just go ahead and feel comfortable having some sort of agency over this automation, but maybe not as much as we're baking in there today.
0: Yeah, what are some of the, the common pitfalls that you come across You know, when people come to implement that and I guess sort of turn some of the, the power of what you can now uncover and enable them to do with AI into an actual designed experience, be that something which is primarily through a visual interface or through uh, an audible interface. If I was coming to you as a a potential user of this, attending one of your workshops, are there any sort of common pitfalls that I'm I'm likely to fall into uh, as someone who's going to be no doubt excited about the potential of it? And I could imagine that would be quite a a challenge with something like this, that it's it's naturally quite an exciting thing for people who own big sets of data to think, wow, what can we do with this now? But are there are there things that people make common mistakes with when they actually start to try and turn that into a designed experience?
1: Yeah, I think it's maybe not a mistake as much as changing the way you think about what a computer can do for you. So like historically... It's been very binary. If I want, if I'm trying to find something, I ask the computer or Google a question and it gives me a result. But the pitfall is making sure that it doesn't start to feel a lot of our designers are you know, just terrified of creating Clippy, that little pop-up paperclip that used to appear in Microsoft Office applications with suggestions. Yeah,
0: it's, it's quite a healthy fear to have, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, I... Didn't experience it myself a ton, but man, there's just like a visceral response to Clippy and my designers, I think self manage their concepts against that idea all the time. Um, they, and and the difference is, you know, Clippy is by again, like binary, like I think, can I help you? Uh, sure. Let me give you this answer or let me point you to this link. Where we want Watson instances to be different is that it shouldn't be binary anymore. It should be at least tertiary or greater. And what I mean by that is it's not just ask a question, get an answer. It should be the system recognizes something that would be significant to you. And then it's looking across multiple different factors That could influence the outcomes. So like, for instance, so we have a product called Cognos and companies use it to create dashboards about things that they want to understand about their company. So if you work with the Watson assistant in Cognos, you might say Watson, make me a sales dashboard. And Watson can go ahead and create a dashboard for you based on whatever data you have categorized as part of your sales corpus. But then it's also looking across all of your other data to see if it can find related relationships that might also be relevant to sales and bringing that forward to you and saying, I created your sales dashboard. And by the way, I also noticed that These other relationships exist and they could tell you things like X, Y, and Z. Do you want me to also add that to your dashboard? So we're not able to just like think about like one user need and one user solution. Instead, you kind of have to open your mind up to many possibilities that could help a user and how all those possibilities can be looked at together to make the best decision. So it's a lot more complex just from like a brain challenge standpoint, I think. But I think, you know, once you get through, you get used to like pushing yourself like, okay, well, yeah, I could automate that. But what else could I do that would make it more powerful? You start to realize like, oh, I'm not taking these things far enough. Most of the time I could take them much further. And I think it's just getting used to that that understanding of like, we can do more and when and how do we do that?
0: Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. I mean, the, I suppose it makes me wonder as well about how you test the success of that with users and whether that that changes. Because previously, you, normally when, when you created a new feature of some kind, you were looking for it to fill fulfill a pretty specific set of objectives and therefore you could, Test in a fairly specific way. Well, did it enable the user to do that faster, or did more users do this than did it before? But I guess with something like what you're talking about there, you're actually trying to go a bit beyond that and get people to uh, sort of go above and beyond the user's expectations and get them to try and experience some things they maybe didn't even know were possible or didn't even know they were needed. And I wonder, I mean, does that have you thought at all about whether that changes the way you need to to test for the the satisfaction and the engagement with that, or whether you can just extend existing methods to to sort of get to an understanding of whether or not that that's working for your users?
1: Well, it definitely changes the way you do secondary or even primary research. Because of the questions you're asking, you don't want to ask users what they need so much anymore because you don't want them to give you to just come back to you with a, a specific solution. You really want to understand their motivations more deeply so that you can come back to them with something that they they haven't experienced before, so they couldn't imagine it. We're not we're no longer like looking to users to say, like, do you want me to put this button here?" Instead, we're trying to understand like, what is it? When you use my product, what is it you really, really want to accomplish? And I I think that um, that five whys exercise has become just kind of at the top of my list for understanding users now. It's not just tell me what you need. It's now tell me what you need and then why and why and why until you get down to like the core motivation which a lot of times will be like why because i want to finish my work and go home because i want a promotion because i want to you know increase roi like it gets to like some just very base root fundamental values that we're trying to achieve and you can solve those in so many different ways from various angles so there's that there's the research part but then or the initial research part but then when it comes to you know testing those ideas I'm not sure that we have a real good baseline for that yet when in my experience, we show these to users they're kind of so pleased that this thing exists and it does something that they that just takes a huge load off of their shoulders. When that happens like their response is so positive, it, I think they'll need to work with it and live with it for a while before we can kind of shuffle down through that initial response into like, okay, and what would make this better? Or is this actually really valuable? Or should it be part of something else, you know? So the features that we're embedding into IBM products right now, they really are new. And there's not a ton of user feedback. Like we're still working on like, what are the right aspects of instrumentation to add to any component that happens to be tied to something that uses Watson that we can, you know, dynamically draw user data from to understand how they're using it. We're, we're just at the very beginning. So all these things I'm saying, I think, are kind of hypothesis based on just some real initial understanding of how this is kind of shaking out.
0: I mean, it must be very exciting, I think, to work at the, the cutting edge of something like that, which is so new and emerging and where the technology is changing as rapidly as it seems to be in, in this area. D- does it give you challenges in regards to the kind of skills that you try to bring into the team to do that, either in terms of like who you're trying to hire to do this or how you're trying to shape the the training of the people on your team to make sure that they're able to, keep up with that from a, a design perspective or to, to do, you know, the, the best work they can um, from a design perspective around this.
1: Yeah, it it is really hard um, because I'm not looking at the same qualities as I was before. Like I'm looking for someone who thinks a certain way or can think in various levels. I'm much less concerned about like, it's great that you you should and you do understand grids and topography and interaction principles and all that. But I think it's getting to like, what kind of generalist are you? Can you understand big concepts and try to turn those like things that a lot of people are uncomfortable with because they're so undefined into something tangible that we can stand up and start to test against. So I don't have a good answer. What, exactly those qualities are I'm actually working with a couple people at IBM on like a list of like what are the different aspects of not just designers but anybody that's on a product development team what do they need to add to their skill sets as we're adding AI to our toolbox and yeah it's I think it's coming down to like ways people think it's strange I don't I don't know how to really describe that because I'm not sure that I would call it anything other than like somebody in the past that could think as a strategist. But we're really, at, we're coming to ask a lot from people that didn't necessarily get into the business for that reason.
0: Yeah, that, that is a pretty fascinating challenge. And I wonder how far back that starts as well. I mean, I know you've had experience uh, teaching uh, classes at, at university level uh, around these subjects as well, whether you've given any thought to you know how early on you need to start sort of targeting that way of, of thinking or that set of skills uh, to then know that those people, as they're coming out of college and, and university, uh, are ready to, to take on those kind of challenges.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I was really excited. I think it was maybe five or six years ago when I read an article about the school systems in Central California that had been working with a lot of um, leaders from you know, Silicon Valley industry nearby to ask them, what kind of qualities do you want to see in the people that you hire? And at the end of that research, they came to focus really deeply on instilling critical thinking into young people. And I think that that's it begins there. It begins like, how do you go about solving a problem, um, questioning the things in front of you, narrowing down possibilities? and opening your mind up to new things that maybe you hadn't considered before. And that isn't necessarily a natural skill. It's something that, yeah, some people do naturally, but a lot of us need to practice over and over again. So I think it starts with like the the earlier you get young children questioning the world around them and learning how to logically think through steps. I think that's a, a large part of it. And then by the time you get to colleges, that generalist attitude, I, the thing that I was surprised about in the classes that I taught were that, and I didn't have any control over this. It just happened that my class was available to anybody at the university of Texas. So I ended up with people in my class from the business school, from theater, from medicine, from computer sciences. Like it was a very diverse group of 30 students And it was really that diversity that made their projects so successful, the way they were able to look at things from different perspectives and come up with different solutions. So I was really, I'm excited about that. And I believe in that diversity, not just from what did you major in in college, but from a life perspective, especially with artificial intelligence and it's capacity to exclude people, if we are not thinking about it from the moment we start building it, the only solution to that is inclusivity. Like how much diversity in knowledge, in backgrounds, in beliefs, in personal experiences can we get on a team to bring in to solve these problems? And that's, I hope that that is a direction that schools start to take as they are hopefully thinking about the kinds of skills that students are going to need if they're going to go into the technology or the innovation industry in the future. I'm actually talking to someone tomorrow or Thursday. His name is Clay. Hold on, let me open this up here. I'll even send this to you. He wrote a report about like the future of innovation, and he did a bunch of research into where he saw companies being able to innovate and how to hire people that are innovative in the future. Yeah, his name is Clay Bunyard. And a lot of his conclusions were about people needing to be generalists. And I would even like extend that to being kind of more of like that renaissance approach. Understand a lot of different things about the world before you come in and think about how to solve one problem for the world. So that's fun. That's really interesting. And I hope it, it continues down that path.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. And uh, if there's you know a link you can share for that, we can put it into the show notes so that the listeners can go and take a look for themselves as well. Uh, but uh, I mean, I would be entirely in agreement with you there around that importance for the diversity of experience which is being brought into this. I mean, you see it in a, I guess, a, a sort of a, a smaller scale environment. You know, just in uh, the kind of workshop setting, you know, the more diverse range of participants that you have in a group. And we've found this year after year with all of the things that we've done with MEX, diversity of industry background, diversity of uh, cultural background, all of those things come together to always create a richer result at the end of it and a result that benefits from and draws on all of that diversity. But it strikes me that it's especially important with something like AI. And I remember you alluding to this, I think, in our um, discussions before we got together for this show, that idea that, you know, at some point we get to a place where AI is in some way building and feeding future AI capabilities so it strikes me that there's the potential for that sort of multiplier effect there to both multiply bias potentially with, with negative results, but also multiply uh, the effect of that diversity with quite positive results, if you get that right. Um, but you know, when you talk about the idea of, of how AI itself and those techniques might feed the construction of future AI techniques, what do you really mean by that? And, and how's that manifesting in, in the work at the moment?
1: I don't know that it's manifesting in the work at the moment. I, I see it more when I do get to do work with students or we're doing, you know, some very initial concept workshops with teams. But like you said, like I've never not had a workshop or a product benefit from more diversity on the team. And I think it's it's just such this cool concept about the world that Everything is connected and that you can look at one thing through infinite lenses and find relationships between them. I just I I love that. I was actually my son is getting ready to go to college in a year or two, and I took him to, to a tour a couple weekends ago. And this college, um, their whole premise was that no matter what project you're working on in any of the courses that you take throughout your four years there, every project or every class concludes with a capstone project where you pick from like almost like a deck of cards, these, like you have your topic and then you pick from these other, this random deck of topics and your capstone project is to figure out what the relationship is between what you've just been learning all semester and these other random things. Um, And I find that just fascinating because for me, it's always resulted in like such creative ideas when you think about things like that. So in our teams, you know, I think there's, it's, I think it's a stressful time to be uh, working in product development right now because it just feels like this race to get, you know, the best use cases of AI into your product before your competitor does, so that, you know, you, you get you capture that mind share before they do. And when you're doing that, it's not necessarily like fertile ground for like how far out can we take this? But I see that happening like maybe in three or four years when these core. AI functionality features are, you know, out the door, they're built, they are sustaining themselves great. And we're coming back and asking the question again, but but what can we do better? Gosh, that's going to be, that'll be the moment, I think, when you see the people that can think like that really kind of rising to the top and being able to take this first pass at our general understanding of AI and really show us what it's capable of doing. I just don't think that we've seen it yet. I mean, it's just, it's able to bring so many different aspects of uh, insight and data and behaviors and recognition together that we're just barely scratching the surface of how we can pull these systems together with multiple areas of functionality to create something new. And that's, gosh, that it is really exciting to be in a place like that. I always love being in future of spaces where what you're working on isn't defined, where there isn't a clear next step and you are kind of challenged to just kind of figure your way out through the forest and see where you end up.
0: Is it bringing you personally into contact with any industries that you're finding sort of particularly inspirational or surprising uh, in terms of how they're thinking about applying some of these tools and techniques within their own business. Because I'm guessing here that these technologies are being applied quite broadly across, you, know, you alluded, I think, to, to healthcare and to legal, but presumably across a whole range of different industries, which you yourself may not have encountered before, but are now getting the chance to get a little bit of a, an insight into how they work and, and why they're excited about these things.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's a single industry that isn't going to be touched by this revolution. But what I've been personally interested in, you know, I am very mired in business analytics because of I'm working on enterprise products. But maybe because partly of the times that we're in right now, you're disconnected, you're physically disconnected from your teams, from your leaders. I've personally always been really passionate about finding what point I want to move towards out on the horizon. And then, figuring out the steps that I take to get there and tracking those steps and adjusting them. And I have this whole process and different tools that I use every day to be strategic about everything that I'm working on, whether it's work-related or life-related, just because I apparently have some sort of like nerdy OCD issues with this. But what it's made me think about is analytics from a personal standpoint. Like how how I love understanding my own data, my own patterns to be better at what I do or maybe more specifically to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish faster. And I've been thinking a lot about like AI from an HR perspective, how how are we using these big systems at a very personal what are my values? What are my hopes? Like what is it that I love to do? To help me do those things? How do I line, you know, the runes up so that my job that I have today evolves into the job that I want tomorrow? And I don't think I get to see very often, because I'm working again, like an enterprise AI at like a very physical touch point with human beings, like just everyday life. And I'm really interested in that, like these big enterprise systems are part of my life working at home on the couch now or driving in the car. Like I'm using, you know, I use Slack. I'm using concur to manage business expenses. Like I want that stuff to work for me at a very human level and be aligned and understand my life and my needs. So I'm curious to see how that, how that starts to fall out because I, I know we're definitely thinking about that at IBM. Like, what's the personal side of enterprise? And that's just a new way, I think, of thinking about business even. We're seeing that business is life when we're trapped at home like this. And it is important that our values are reflected in the things that we're doing every day.
0: I think that's a really interesting potential future use of this, particularly what you were mentioning there around how it might be applied to hr and, and recruitment and that sense that you know companies every day go through the process of meeting people who might help them to build their businesses in the future do something useful together where there's a mutual benefit to those people and those companies working together and yet the timing maybe isn't quite right at that particular moment but imagining being able to uh, tap into all of that intelligence that's gathered in those hiring discussions and be able to go back in a few months time and say well actually you know what we really need is some people who had particular goals or particular um, sentiments around a certain issue and that we can now actually go back and find out who those people were and even if we weren't in a position to hire them at that time we can now understand that there are roles within the business which are appropriate perhaps not to the specific qualifications that they have but to the way they behave or the way they think and being able to, to join up those dots and if uh, something like these tools could could bring that potential. You know, that's that that's pretty significant.
1: That's really cool, Merrick. I hadn't thought, you know, like taken that thought that far. But you're right. Like when we were talking a little while ago about like what are the skills that you need to be good at, you know, building interesting, valuable AI systems. Like I don't know, but that's exactly what machine learning is for. Like just show the system. Like here's somebody that's good at it. Now you figure out like what their characteristics are and who else has similar characteristics like let the machines find those patterns i think that's amazing what a good idea
0: yeah well perhaps um you know we'll see more of this in the in the future as these these tools start to evolve um I, it's you know it's hard to know which aspects of this to focus in on because I'm conscious that there are so many different parts of this that we could could delve into in more detail. One part which I was really keen to make sure that we we did talk about was uh, some of the the notions around what you describe I think as as green AI. What do you mean by that, and what's the focus for that uh, at the moment for you?
1: This is something I learned about last year and i'm still gathering all of my research and facts and i'll i'll put out a little paper on it sometime this year but did you know that machine learning models are accounting for almost all of the energy that we're putting out through computer centers right now And the more complicated your model is, or the less organized your data is, the more energy it takes for machines to run the models and run your data through it. I mean, and I'm talking about literal energy costs like oil or, you know, solar or wind, like whatever it is. Like, we there are ways to map exactly what your carbon footprint will be for a model that you've created.
0: That's pretty interesting. I know I I didn't know that. I mean, I remember from our previous conversation, you describing all of these techniques around AI as essentially big data plus fast processing. So I guess naturally you make that leap to the idea, well, fast processing is going to take a lot of energy. But I didn't realize it could be sort of calculated with that level of precision that certain models were going to use more energy than others.
1: Exactly. I didn't either until I really started looking at this. And now I'm talking to a bunch of people at IBM Research who have been thinking about it. But just to bring it back to the design conversation, gosh, like there's something very tangible that we can do as we are thinking about how to use AI in our products that can bring more responsibility to what's happening on the planet. Do I really, really need to use this kind of model to get the answer that I want. Like, and I think that that's going to become part of the design evaluation at some point where we're asking how simple can we get these models down to, or how, how much data do you really need? Do you really need to search all of the data on the internet to get this insight? Is it that valuable that you're willing to pay the energy costs for that? Like what's the offset for it? So It is like, I don't understand enough yet about how we can kind of look at the different layers of a neural network and thin them out, decide like which ones are beneficial, which ones are just kind of nice to haves, but we're going to get there. Google Brain and DeepMind have already been working on it and I'll send you the report. I forget how much it was that they've been saving. I think it's like a third of their energy costs have been saved because they are getting smarter about the machine learning models that they're building. And that's just, I didn't think about that. I was so gung ho about, yay, AI, let's figure out all the different ways that we can use it, that I wasn't asking like, well, what's the real cost of this? And do I need all of it? You know?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, that's a factor which is coming into so many end users purchasing decisions now especially where those data are being made more available in certain industries i mean if you think about the way people buy cars now or think about air travel or even things within the area of smartphones and consumer electronics i think a greater and greater percentage of people are considering what are the environmental implications of that purchasing decision that they make you know in, in something like smartphones it can be as simple as whether or not it's a company which insists on putting a new charger in every box for a range of phones where the charges have been standardized for years and people think, well, I don't necessarily need that. And you could easily see that sentiment extending and influencing the way people experience things when uh, they have a level of consciousness about the environmental implications of the the business intelligence that they're using or the power of the assistant that they're using and that that becomes part of the overall experience for them.
1: Yeah, Definitely. I mean, I, I expect a certain percentage of users to be cognizant of that and make purchasing decisions that, you know, are influenced by, like, what's what's a good choice for the climate or the globe. <laughs> Companies, you know, I trust them to make decisions based on what's going to save them money. And at least this is, you know, it happens to be grain They'll just see the bottom line and they'll want to, you know, reduce their costs anyway. And that happens to be good for the Earth. So I feel good about that, that it'll happen. I feel confident it'll happen just because of the outcomes and the payoff that they're going to get from it.
0: Yeah, that's that great uh, win-win situation, I suppose. Yeah. One of the other things that I was uh, intrigued to go back to, and I think this was actually the very initial reason why you and I got in touch in the first place, was At the time, I think you were trying to strike a bit of a balance or at least explore the balance between with the teams that were working with you, how much of your time you spent, I guess, on the the day to day deliverables versus how for people who are coming particularly from a sort of creative and and design background you continue to allocate some of your working time to thinking about the the big picture future stuff and giving people a chance to go off and explore on some of the tangents that might become valuable things in the future but maybe weren't aligned with the the day-to-day and I'm sort of Wondering a bit about that, both in terms of the, the longer term of, of where you got to with that and whether you feel like you, you made any changes or progress on that, but also particularly what it's meant over the last little while, where we've all had these big changes to our working practices because of the pandemic.
1: So when we were talking about that a couple of years back, it was taking me so much time, days. A three-day workshop, and I don't mean like a lightweight three-day workshop. I mean like eight to 10-hour days, three days in a row, just to get a team from, we know we need to put AI into our product all the way through to, okay, I have a strategic approach for exactly how we're going to use AI, why we're going to use it, comps for what it's going to look like, technical specs for how we're going to build it. Three days. And that, preparing for those workshops took me three weeks. And preparing the content that became those workshops probably took me a good year and they're constantly evolving and they've continued to evolve. I have it down to an hour now, and that speaks a lot to just that people are learning and understanding more and getting more comfortable with it. I think it's also been me realizing that we don't need to look at the full strategic every single angle to understand what the best use cases for AI are going to be for this product, I can. I kind of got to a point where I could tell a team that before we went into a workshop, you're probably going to end up using it for A, B, and C, and usually it would end up going down that path. So the more confident I became in what those common use cases were, the more excited I got about getting those defined, knocking them out, and making them very consumable and implementable for teams. I'm always wondering, you know, like I've been mired in this very tactile, let's make things and get them out the door uh, mission for over a year now. It hasn't allowed for much time for looking towards like, well, what is it that I need to be thinking about that I'm not thinking about what's coming next for these teams that I need to help prepare them for, or what can we do better? So I'm trying to right now get my feet under myself and my company in terms of like, let's stop reinventing the wheel every time we need to look at a product and figure out what the most valuable use case is. Let's package those use cases up and you can, basically shop for them almost like like you would on iTunes. Like, oh, I have a product, my user need is X, Y, and Z, and now the system can show me, oh, here are the four like little AI use cases that you should be using. Here's the starter pack for it, just go plug it in. I want to get to that point so that we can all get out from underneath this this weighted rush of busy work and start thinking bigger, but I'm not there yet. You know, getting those just AI patterns defined—that's my future of work right now. It's I have to make time for that so that I can have time later on. I don't know if that makes sense. It's not part of my day job. It's part of like planning for my day job next year, so that next year is less tactile and more future of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a pretty familiar challenge, I think, and I guess an opportunity as well in the sense that. I would imagine that the more of those uh, users of these workshops that you get up to speed and building their own things more rapidly, the more you're going to see them being able to pick up the ball and run with it for themselves uh, and go on to do things that maybe you weren't able to imagine for them there's a real value i think to just getting the tools into people's hands rapidly and giving them the opportunity to try it and get hands on with it and to to start to see some of those opportunities that might be hidden even from from you who are building these things day to day
1: so much so like that's that's my big end goal is to basically put myself out of a job like i want everyone in our company to know how to like use these tools, get the basic premise of like how this stuff works. And then they're going to do, you know, fantastic things with it. It's it's just that barrier to entry. I think with AI, it's an intimidating topic because it's got a lot of fancy words in it and it seems complex. But once you get people through that, like, oh, I get it. I've got my arms around this, at least to the point where I feel confident opening it up my mind to ideas and then actually sharing them with other people. That's, that's where I want to get everybody to. And I think once we're there, it, it, it'll just become part of all of the other creative things and innovation work that we're doing.
0: So where do you go for your inspiration yourself? You know, especially now when we're all, or I think a lot of the people listening to this adapting to being at home and working, I guess, in more individual settings, uh, are you still finding that you're having time to go off and search for inspiration sort of at the edge of what you're working on day to day or things that, you know, keep you inspired in, in other areas of life?
1: Yeah, I tend to like the way I think about work is by or looking for what the new thing is going to be is by not looking at work. I look at everything else Um <laughs> And right now, and I tend to, like, notice, like, themes and patterns in what people are talking about or thinking about or, you know, what we're watching. And for me, the pattern lately has been about this kind of, like, fascination with old stories, history, um, and particularly times that were challenging and difficult, even more so than what we're experiencing now. I've been really obsessed lately with reading about World War I and World War II and watching movies about it and under- and trying to understand. I have moments where I feel scared or uncertain about what's going on in the world right now. And I I think I'm trying to understand it and learn how to deal with it by trying to understand how people dealt with it in the past and how much more stressful their situations were. Um, And there are so many interesting, sad or beautiful or inspiring stories out there about that. And I'm, I don't know if it's because it is partly because I'm looking for them, but also maybe because other people are interested in this as well. I see more and more like documentaries and news articles coming out about it, even like I think I just got absolute confirmation on it with two things. The there's a show on um, Netflix called dark and it's all about the relationships um, throughout time and time travel and how, you know, time isn't real and everything happens at once and how all of these old stories are influencing the present and the future. That was one thing and how that, that show is really taken off with, with like a cult following and, People are talking a lot about like the quantum physics behind it. And then also Taylor Swift's album Folklore came out. I listened to it and just thought, well, she's doing the same thing. Like she's written this whole album about the couple that used to own her house in Rhode Island and her grandfather going off to World War II and imagining what they were feeling and what they were experiencing and making up this storyline through song about it. I don't know, something like about that theme is kind of noodling in my brain. And I think it comes back to that HR problem of like, what do we really as human beings love and care about and how do we make that our everyday life? So I'm going very deep into, um,
0: no, that that's great. Those are two, um, the, the Taylor Swift album I had heard about the release of, but the Netflix program I had not come across. Those are two good recommendations that I'm going to go off and, and check out. I have one for, for you as well on that theme. Oh. Uh, there's actually a, a podcast that I've been listening to for a little while called Uncanny Japan. And it's a lady who writes, I guess, sort of updated versions and translations of Japanese folk tales. And then she Uh makes short episodes uh, for this podcast where she kind of explains a little bit about the history of where these superstitions and where this history came from. For me, having never been to Japan, but having just an interest in in the country, I've found it a really fascinating way to learn about a bunch of stuff that I guess I never would otherwise have encountered in in day-to-day life. So uh, I'll send you across the link for that in case it's of interest on the idea of connecting to the history and, and the past.
1: Yes, me too, me too on all things like not having visited Japan and being a little obsessed with. Just what what life is like over there and what the stories are. I'll tell you one really weird thing about Japan, and then we can get back to like normal conversation or wrapping things up. When I started dating my husband, and we were talking about like, well, what do you want for your future? We both had the same like physical dream of, I mean, like from sleeping, had had the same dream of living in Japan and like a farmhouse and being very old and walking up a nearby mountain path to freeze to death. Like when we felt it was time to like leave the world, it was the strangest thing. Like I can, I can see exactly like those images so clearly and it just feels so much like of this whole, like time past present all being the same and stories and it was just a strange personal weird glitch in the matrix for us
0: Wow, yeah and interesting to think you know where i guess that that must have come from somewhere in each of your brains that those sort of images or those themes had i guess separately been planted in there somewhere and then manifest in that way it's it's amazing what the brain is able to create from
1: those things well, that or it already happened. We're just remembering it. Who knows? <laughs> uh,
0: this is true. Yeah, absolutely. This could be all from a, a past life um, or a future possibility.
1: Yes, yes.
0: It's It does make me think a little bit about, you know, on this subject of, of inspirations, you know, one of the things I guess I've been thinking a bit about since the pandemic and the, the change in working practices is where people have been looking for their fun and the massive increase mm-hmm. that we're seeing in the use of gaming and particularly quite sort of immersive world experiences in games and whether they're giving people the opportunity to live out some of those sort of edge of dream, edge of consciousness experiences that you might have daydreamed about and you're na- now able to enact those in some ways through virtual reality or you know getting into a really sort of immersive gameplay environment And I'm not a gamer at all. I've really you know never spent much time um, on computer games whatsoever but it's just become something which has kind of intrigued me a bit and particularly how that's becoming a bigger part of people's day-to-day as their sort of physical, mobility and where you can go and have your fun in day-to-day life is restricted that people have started to look for that in i guess perhaps or attach more meaning to to those virtual experiences now than they might have done before
1: Mm, i love that i'm so grateful which is a weird thing to say but for this strange pause in the routine of the world and i feel like so many of us needed it, but couldn't manifest it. Like we knew we needed to slow down or we needed to spend more time thinking, or we needed to change some behaviors. And uh, it's just absolutely astounding to me that the whole world changed behavior patterns like on a dime. And it's really made me realize like how quickly we can make things happen if we want to. And that I really hope this time that we're going through makes us all realize some things that we could be doing better in how we live our lives and how we treat each other and how we treat the planet and that those those things aren't things we have to say you know 20 years from now we'll be able to change it or whatever like we can change it right now because we've just done it and I I really hope that that is what is going to come out of all of this. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think there are many reasons to be hopeful on that front, you know, even amid all of the difficulties that it's it's causing. Um, we actually had a, a MEX podcast conversation on this theme with a lady called Samar Heshami uh, a few months back where we were kind of looking at some of those issues and how, I guess, you can take a, an interruption like this and take a, a design-led perspective on it and think about what those opportunities are and where the big systemic changes can start to happen when you have that unexpected spanner thrown in the works and you know how you can start to try and do something positive with that and you know i was i found it um you know pretty eye-opening some of the things that she'd been thinking about about how we might start to make some of those changes
1: uh i i'm gonna go and listen to that um because I'm worried no one else is thinking about it or we're not talking about it enough, it'll make me really happy to hear someone else's perspective and, and hear what they're thinking about.
0: Well, it's been wonderful to have this opportunity to catch up with you as well, Jennifer. We'll have to make sure we don't leave it another two and a half years before we do it again. Um, but thank you for taking the time to you know update me on everything that's going on in, in the day-to-day work and you know, your thoughts about the future too. And it would be great to stay in touch on it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening, Merrick. This was really nice.
0: Okay. Well, there we go. What did you think of of all that? What did you think of the chat? The podcast has been on holiday for a bit. So I'm really, really intrigued to hear back from you guys about what you thought of this one, uh, but also who I might talk to next. Uh, Maybe you even have a recommendation or an introduction of your own for a guest who you think should be on the show. If you'd like to get in touch about that or, or anything else, and I do read everything that you guys send me, the best way is by email. And the address for that is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Now, for me, I absolutely loved having the chance to chat to Jennifer again. Not only is she working on a really interesting area, and it's an area which I personally think is going to be key to so much of experience design going forward. I think she's also just a wonderful teller of stories and obviously someone who is a pretty deep and expansive thinker on that wider context of what she's doing with her work. Before I go, I wanted to see if any of you were up for a challenge. Do you remember what Jennifer was saying about that college that she went to visit with her son and how they'd introduced this discipline of asking their students to take a result that they'd achieved within one of their classes, you know, a finished piece of work, and then to pick an industry or a product at random and go off and look at how those two seemingly unrelated things might actually interrelate to seek those new sort of relationships between them. Well, that is my challenge for you take something that you've worked on recently, you know, something that you feel has got to the point which has been delivered, and then try to think up the most random way you can select seemingly unrelated, whatever it is, object, industry, person, and then just take a few minutes to think about the ways in which those two things might interlink, what kind of relationships, interdependencies you could establish between them. I would really love to hear how that goes for you. And I promise that if even just one of you sends me an email to tell me about the results that you got to with it, then I will respond in kind and share my own example in a future edition of this podcast. So if you want to do that and drop me a note about how you got on with that homework exercise, then the email address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Now, while we're on that subject of addresses, don't forget that if you want to take a look at the show notes for this one, then you want to head over to mobileuserexperience.com, take a look in the podcast section, and there you will find notes with links to everything that Jennifer and I talked about. So some of those reports and the stats that she referenced right through to the Netflix and podcast recommendations that we got on to talking about at the end. I'll be back soon with another
1: edition of this show, but that's it for now. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.